MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Cost of These Dreams from Wright Thompson, a podcast about sports stories from iHeartMedia, Graphic Audio, and Goat Rodeo. This next episode is The Last Days of Tony Harris. Ian, I don't know if you watched a lot of college ball. Did you ever see Tony Harris play? Do you know who Tony Harris is? I have no idea who Tony Harris was before I read this piece. This entire story was a shock to me when I read it. So Tony Harris was this college sports star who played for Washington State University. And he took them all the way to the East Regionals of the NCAA tournament while he was playing for them. He didn't actually get drafted into the NBA. So many players that either don't pan out in their their professional league here in the United States will go play in Europe or in South America. or There are a lot of guys who are really, really good athletes who wind up playing in Spain or Brazil or Italy or, you know, Serbia. When they bring these guys over, it's a very big deal that, like, they are the, you know, the franchise player for their, you know, respective team. Right. Yeah, so Tony ended up in the Brazilian League, and he became um, kind of a household name over there, actually. Like, he was beloved. You know, people really uh, cared about him and knew about him over in Brazil as a player. Also, a thing that's really overlooked is how lonely it can be to be one of these players that you're playing in a country where you might not speak the language, where you are living largely out of hotels, on top of that you're traveling. That can be a lot, and certainly can be a lot when you are struggling with other things, uh, like mental health. And it seemed very much like Tony Harris was struggling with that. And so the next time you might have heard about him in the U.S. was when he disappeared. And I don't think Wright knew anything about Tony Harris when he got on the plane uh, to Brazil to find out just what had happened there. Uh, you know, there was a lot of news just for a moment about his disappearance. There was a real mystery there when, when he got on that plane of just what exactly happened to Tony Harris. 
And just as a heads up for listeners, this episode touches on suicide, mental health issues, and violence. This is the last days of Tony Harris. The city outside the window of room 1507 at the Carlton Hotel is an unlikely place to go insane. Designed as living modern art, the city of Brasilia is defined by its order. But Tony Harris doesn't see order. He sees danger. He knows how this must sound to the locals he's confiding in, to the friends and family he's emailing and calling back in Seattle. He knows he sounds out of his mind, but something is after him. An idea is forming in his subconscious. Run. The room itself is worn, a step or two down from the place he stayed the last time he played professional basketball here, more than two years ago. But then again, at 36, he's worn too. He never planned on playing again. There are two narrow beds, and tan bedspreads and brown carpet. The bedside table is cracked, the original wood grain visible beneath the varnish. A single page in the thick phone book is creased, the page for funeral homes. Wireless internet is his best friend, the connection making him feel safe. He needs it. The emails coming to the United States from Tony Harris are scary. Just the other day, he wrote his mother-in-law. I know that I can be paranoid at times, but I know when I hear things. And when people stop talking when I come into the area, I just pray that I'm wrong, Connie. I want to see my family again. I love my wife so much. I want to see our child, Gloria and I. The phone next to his bed is his other lifeline. Dial 82 for a wake-up call. Dial 2 for room service like he did yesterday. Dial 0 for an outside line. Zero takes him home. Yesterday, he talked with his wife, Laurie. He told her of the closing darkness, of the whispers in the locker room, that he had slept with someone's wife the last time he played here, or that he'd fled because he had AIDS. That's why he brought proof of his negative AIDS test to show the players and stop the whispers, but they didn't seem to understand. So last night, on the phone with Laurie, confused and shaken, he began settling his accounts. Tell my mama I love her. Tell my son I love him and to finish school and to make something of himself and that I'm proud of him. You're scaring me, she said. I need to tell you this, he said, in case something happens to me. Last night, he thought he was dead for sure. This morning, a plan begins to form. He asked Brent Merritt, a friend from Seattle who played here, to call the team. He follows up with an email, asking Brent to call back if he doesn't hear from him. Asked to speak to me, he instructs. But then another thought enters his head. What if the team has someone pretend to be him? He needs a test. So he gives Brent a password of sorts. Ask the person claiming to be me what the name of my dog is. If he doesn't say Inya, it ain't me. Posto Vitória, 100% de qualidade nos combustíveis e o melhor atendimento. Once, not that long ago, Tony was one of the best players in the Brazilian league. Tonight, he doesn't take a single shot. When the game is finally over, 
he rushes back to his hotel room, away from the tailing cars and lobby whispers. He sends an email to his wife. I am home now. I just feel like crying all night. Babe, I am really paranoid. I still think they're going to try and do me harm. Why do I feel this way? I am not sure. Forgive me, babe, please, I am sorry. Tell me why when I got home into my apartment, the TV was way up loud, and when I left, it was really low, and the maids cleaned my room earlier. Soon, Tony Harris fell asleep. It would be the last night of his old life. On Saturday, November 3rd, another game ends. Tony shows a flicker of the man who led the Washington State Cougars to the NCAA tournament in 1994. He scores eight points, but at least he doesn't dribble the ball off his foot like he did a few days ago. But the panic that started in his mind has now reached his legs. They tell him to run. He nervously changes into a gray tracksuit, ties his blue and white size 13 Nikes, and asks a teammate he trusts, Estebaum, to give him a ride to the Carlton. Estebaum says sure, and they climb into his car. Back at the Carlton, Tony invites his friend upstairs. On the 15th floor, Tony begins packing. This isn't the first time he has done this. His teammate asks him what's happening. I miss my wife is all Tony has by way of explanation. I want to get away from here. Tony is in a hurry, but not rushing. Methodically, as if following a well-practiced escape plan, he takes about 15 minutes to get a backpack ready laptop, a change of clothes, a few other essentials. The rest of his belongings he leaves behind. When Tony steps out of the hotel, there is no turning back. Tony begins to lose control. He has fought so hard for the past four days, trying to talk these feelings away or stuff them down deep down inside and get through just one more season. But he can fight no longer. Now he must run. There is a cost for crossing the thin line between imaginary and real, between light and dark. His teammate asks him questions. Are you all right? Can I talk to anyone? Tony doesn't answer. He weeps. He is silent. They arrive at the airport. Tony asks Esteban to wait, then goes inside alone. Only he doesn't buy a plane ticket home. Instead, he purchases a ticket to Natal, a beach town in the northeast of Brazil. He is planning to fly there, where his friend Erica lives, and then figure out what to do next. Erica worked at the hotel where he stayed when he played here before. It's security, though, he hits a wall. He doesn't have his passport. The team has it. They need to provide documents for each player before each game, so it's easier if the team keeps them. It's standard practice, but now Tony's sure the team is in on this plot to kill him. He can't ask the team. Now he doesn't know what to do. Esteban, sitting in his car, watches his friend coming out of the airport. Tony looks scared. His plan has fallen apart. Without structure, the night becomes even more frightening. So please tell me what you want to do now, Esteban says. I don't know, Tony says. Please help me. A new plan is hatched. The bus station. Goiania is a city close to Brasilia. Buses leave every hour. Tony likes this idea. He has a friend in Goiania. 
and ex-girlfriend, Daniela. They drive back toward Brasilia to the bus station, a half-hour trip. Esteban still doesn't understand. Let's go to the police, he said. Tony says no. No cops, no U.S. Embassy, only escape. The bus station finally appears in front of them, and the two men go inside. Tony purchases a ticket, and Esteban walks him to the correct bus. Something is coming to an end. Both men sense it. Tony hugs his teammate and says, you live in my heart. The bus pulls away. Before it leaves the comforting glow of the station, Esteban sees Tony sitting by the window. The men lock eyes a final time. Tony gives him a thumbs up. In the last breath of the vanishing light, he takes his right hand and beats on his chest. You live in my heart. In Seattle, his word spreads of Tony's disappearance. His friends and family try to make sense of it. They know Tony is running. Some know Tony has a history of paranoid behavior. Some know it isn't the first time he's been scared. The first time, eight years ago, he was in South Korea playing basketball. He was out with a teammate, Derek Johnson, and two girls in the VIP section of a Seoul club. A group of Korean men, speaking Russian, attacked the woman with Tony, striking her in the face with a bottle. Later, after she had jumped in their cab to escape, a van chased them down, cut them off on a bridge, and the woman was yanked from the car by the same men. Johnson laughed it off. Tony didn't. He started seeing danger in every shadow. He stopped going out. Something inside of him changed. From there, Johnson says, I saw the paranoia. He believed people were following him. Once, he yelled duck to a friend. There was no one there. He saw a man he'd fought with as a preteen walk into a gym. He ran from the gym, leaving his gear behind, explaining later that the guy was going to hurt him. A friend says the long-lost enemy never knew Tony was in the gym. Then he stopped going to gyms entirely, giving up basketball for the first time in his life. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Nikki Glazer Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glazer Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glazer Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glazer Podcast. To start listening. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sunday, November 4th. Tony stands outside a green gate, next door to a motorcycle repair shop, waiting on a cab driver to let him in. Jose Lindemar Jesus, called Bayano by his friends, steps into the light, eyeing the tall man before him. Bayano shows Tony a place against the turquoise walls of the house where he can sit. The driver goes into the house and Tony slumps down. It had been a long night. He arrived at the bus station here around 2 a.m. He called Erica and tried to get Daniela's number. They were all friends. Erica didn't have it. The plan was not working. He asked how to get to Natal from Goiania. She told him to take a bus. No, he explained, that bus went through Brasilia, and he could not have that. Finally, they came up with a solution, a cab to Salvador, where he'd get a friend of Erica's to meet him and accompany him to Natal. Tony walked a few blocks to find a cab parked in front of a local hospital. That guy wouldn't do it, but he thought his friend might. That's where Bayano comes in. And now it's 8.30 a.m., and Tony is still here, waiting to run. Tony gets into the front of the white Chevy taxi cab. Bayano takes a right out of his driveway, past the motorcycle repair shop, winds through the gears as they climb the hill toward the center of town. Tony wants to go to the Bank of Brazil, which accepts American ATM cards. The machine is in the far back right corner, and Tony slides in his card, enters his pen, and his card is declined. Bayano tries to read the screen over his shoulder. Tony is at his daily withdrawal limit. He'd already taken out money at the bus station, so what could he do? Harris gives the cab driver about $340, most of the money he has on him, and promises to pay the remaining 1100 in Salvador. This means altering the plan yet again. Tony finds an internet cafe, dark, narrow shotgun building with low ceilings and green walls, and buys a half hour of web time and a phone card. He sits down at Terminal 3, a stark white cubicle, and sends an email. Back home in Seattle, Laurie's computer is set to ding when she gets mail. It's before dawn, which doesn't matter to Tony. He sends his first email at 9.34 a.m. local time. 
hey, what are you doing? This is Tony. I need to talk to you because I have to put some money in someone's account so that I can get to Erica's city. Please respond. Less than a minute later, he writes again, virtually the same message. This time, Lori hears and answers. Tony gives her Bayano's cell phone number and license number, tells her the plan, then logs off. Soon, Bayano's phone rings. It's Lori. She and Tony talk. It's a short call, just a few details. This is the last time they will ever hear each other's voices. Tony and the driver leave town. Tony chain smokes, going through three cigarettes until the rain comes and Bayano rolls up the window. After an hour and a half, they cross the border between the state of Goyas and the federal district. A big sign above the road marks the boundary. It also reads, Brasilia, 54 kilometers. Without a word, Tony dives over the passenger seat, legs up in the air, clawing for the back seat until he's laying down, curled up, and all that's visible from the window is the rainy sky overhead, clouds so big and nasty they seem to swallow you whole. Bayano asks Tony what he's doing. I have a headache, Tony says. They drive through Basilia, past the television tower in the Carlton Hotel. Tony cowers out of sight. Finally, he is coaxed back up front, and the journey continues towards Salvador until about 2 p.m., when Bayano gets hungry. A town appears on the horizon, a Badlands outpost named Bezerra. The centerpiece of Bezerra is a Texaco station with a little diner attached called Sabor Gaucho. Tony refuses to go inside for lunch, so he waits in the car. After lunch, they pull up to a pump a few yards away. Tony hands Bayano his debit card and agrees to wait a little longer. Something changes his mind. Tony gets out of the car, leaving his backpack inside. He walks into the small convenience store, which is in between the diner and the office where you pay for gas. A young man named Warley Dion is behind the register. Out of nowhere, a troubled expression crosses Tony's face. Where's the taxi driver, he asks. He's out in the office paying for gas, Warley says. Tony does not reply. He wheels around, out the glass doors, past the pumps, running, making a hard left at the highway, past the restaurant next door, out of sight. Warley chases after him. So does Bayano, who is going to ask for the pin. Without it, the charge will be declined, later showing up on Tony's credit card statement as a failed attempt. When Warley and Bayano reach the street, they see nothing. Tony has left behind a past, a future, a city of fans, a 14-year-old son, a pregnant wife, a change of clothes, a backpack, and the laptop computer that has kept him tethered these past few days. He has disappeared into the woods. Life was hard for Tony after Brazil. He tried to do the right thing. Whatever scared him also made him grow up. He married Laurie joined a church, and volunteered at a local homeless shelter. For a while, he worked with children in a juvenile detention center named Echo Glen. His past followed him, though. When his job was about to become full-time, a background check found a report about child abuse. Years before, a teacher found Tony had spanked his son, leaving a mark just before driving him off for school. 
Never mind that the report absolved Tony of abuse. Almost two years to the day since he left Brazil, he lost his job. That was nine months ago. Then Lori got pregnant, and he felt emasculated by his inability to support his family. Tony tried, applying for work at more than 50 places. But without a bachelor's degree, his fleeting fame did him no good. No one seemed to remember or even care that he'd taken Washington State to the NCAA tournament. He withdrew into himself, fighting with Laurie, even briefly moving out. But he kept trying, moving back in the house, taking correspondence courses, applying for more jobs, even one at a grocery store, anything to feed his family. Then the phone rang. It was his old general manager from Brazil, desperately in need of a replacement player for an upcoming tournament. Tony was desperate too. For his family, he would try to keep it together. He needed the money. Tony Harris has run and he is hiding. What must he be thinking, crouching in the woods, counting the minutes and hours until he thinks it's safe to come out? Bayano drives up and down the street for a while, but after an hour and a half, he heads home with Tony's backpack in his car. Sometimes Sunday evening, Tony comes out of the wilderness. He begs for food. Migrant workers and hobos frequent this road, stopping for work when they can find it, so most people don't think this is strange. No one sees Tony on Monday. There are no reports of him walking the road. But Monday afternoon, about 4.30, he finds a phone, according to his Brazilian team trainer, Mario. He dials a familiar number. Mario's. He was once a friend, but is now someone who Tony thinks might be part of the plot to kill him. Tony says, hello. Where are you, Mario says. I'm going to pick you up. Tony must make a decision. There is a struggle inside of him, these competing urges. Is Mario a friend? Is he an enemy? Tony shakes off the doubt. No, Tony says. I won't tell you. You'll tell the others, and they'll come to kill me. Tony hangs up. He disappears again, and no one sees him Monday or Tuesday. Police will later assume he was hiding in the bush, burning up during the day, freezing at night. The U.S. Embassy will say it had no more confirmed sightings, but the Brazilian police, along with a resident in the town, will say he made one more walk into the light. Tony Harris, the Garfield High School player, vanished eight days ago. He called his wife from Brazil, where he was playing basketball, and said he felt he was in danger. And as KXLY Force Eric Loney reports, she hasn't heard from him since. Tony Harris was a star on the Cougars' 1994 basketball team that made it to the NC2A tournament but lost in the first round. His wife says he was in a taxi that stopped for gas. The driver went inside to get some food, and when the driver came out, Harris was gone. Harris's family says the Brazilian basketball team is playing for is refusing to go help look for him. They're trying to get emergency passports to go to Brazil themselves and start searching for him. Reporting live, Eric Loney, KXY4. On Wednesday morning, according to police records, a man looking like Tony knocked on a woman's door, begging for coffee and bread. On Wednesday afternoon, a few wandering hobos talked to him briefly. He was covered in dirt and grime and asked them for a clean shirt. They would say later they gave him one, but it was never found. That night, around 7 o'clock, Harris stumbled toward the gas station where this all began, past the pumps, back through the glass doors, 
Maria Paula Goncalves, wearing her green uniform, stood behind the counter. The man in front of her was nervous, she would say later, barely looking at her, looking over his shoulders instead. He asked for a pack of derby cigarettes and paid in the Brazilian equivalent of dimes. Three and a half hours later, he returned and asked the same woman for food. A few days later, after seeing his picture on television, she would say it was Tony Harris. She fixed him a plate, some leftover meat, rice, and beans, and wrapped it up to go. This time he was calm, not looking over his shoulder. He took the food and headed back out into the night. It's about four miles to where he would complete this final walk. No known person would ever see Tony Harris alive again. Pedro Mar Augusta de Souza is the chief of police in the nearest city. He has been assigned directly to work on the case of investigating the bizarre death of Tony Lee Harris. From afar, he has heard the conspiracy theories from the folks back in the States, that the Brazilian team lured Tony down to Brazil to kill him, that the police are covering up a crime, or worse, or even that the Brazilian army killed him. Some media reports in Seattle included errors, which aroused suspicion. The cremation of the body was viewed as suspicious, though family members back home didn't know there was nothing really left but skin, bones, and worms. He knows people think he's not being thorough. It would be easy to say it was a suicide and close the case, he says. I want to make really sure it was not a homicide, to be 100% sure. There are a few questions left. The decomposition of the body prohibited an accurate toxicology report. The cause of death is still officially undetermined, and lab officials cannot say with complete certainty that it was a death by hanging. They are virtually certain, but the state of the corpse has hindered the detective work. And there are other stray facts. Two cigarette butts were found near the body. Lab technicians are working to determine whether those were smoked by Tony, though no lighter was found near his body. Tony's wedding ring was missing. His wallet was missing. His sweatpants were missing. There was likely money missing, though how much is unknown. And then there's the biggest mystery of all the curious extra shoelace. D'Souza needs answers before closing the case. Right now, there's a sliver of doubt. A heartbreaking possibility exists. Could Tony Harris have been losing his mind, running from people who were not chasing him, only to end up surrounded by actual danger? The body had no bullet holes or stab wounds, no broken bones or tissue under the fingernails but the rain in the wilderness erased any other forensic clues. The walk to the monkey pepper tree is long and difficult, no matter the route. Tony Harris leaves the gas station and disappears into the Cerrado, a sprawling Brazilian savanna that surrounds the town. Cerrado literally means inaccessible in Portuguese. The land is frightening and foreign, quilts of open field dotted with termite mounds and tall tropical trees. They are long runs of covered forest. The greens are psychedelic. Songbirds sing a sweet melody in the background. How long was Tony out here? A day, two, three? The soldiers said you could live for a month if you knew what you were doing. The place is covered with edible fruit and fresh water. No one knows where Tony Harris walked 
or what he thought or felt as he wove deeper and deeper into the maze-like wilderness. Was he scared? Did he stop running? Did someone stop him from running? Somehow, he ended up at the monkey pepper tree. It's clearly visible, atop the crown of a small mound, in a clearing, a few smaller trees setting a perimeter. Though there's deeper forest all around it, from the tree, a man can look up and see heaven. Police estimate he died on or about Friday, November 9th. An anonymous call came in on Sunday, November 18th, his birthday. About 20 feet from the monkey pepper tree is a fishing hole, though you can't see it without crawling through dense vegetation. A walking path to it, if you know exactly where to dip into the forest, goes right past the tree. Police believe the tipster is an illegal fisherman without permission to be on a military base. That's yet another heartbreaking detail. Tony Harris loved to fish, and some investigators believe he might have been out of his mind from dehydration. But if he had walked more or less straight here from town, he ended up only 20 yards shy of life-saving water and more fish than he could have eaten in a month. Police and soldiers arrive on the scene. Those big basketball shoes are just a foot off the ground. The corpse no longer Tony Harris, hangs from a sturdy branch by a black shoelace. They look at his feet and notice that both of his shoelaces are still in place. So he brought an extra shoelace with him from Brasilia and managed to keep it despite losing his computer, pants, wallet, and ring? That seems strange. This place seems too remote for anyone to have carried a body so far, and forensic evidence suggests Tony's life ended in this clearing, hanging from a monkey pepper tree, four miles from Bezerra, 6,000 miles from Seattle, totally and utterly alone. Did his life flash before his eyes? Did he see a lost job and rejected applications? Did he see people chasing him and shadows and whispers? Or did he see other, happier things? Maybe a boy in Seattle pointing so many years ago and telling his mom, that's Tony Harris. He plays for Garfield. Maybe a bear hug with Kelvin Sampson after making it to the NCAA tournament. Or maybe he saw his 14-year-old son, who looks just like him, or his wife, or his mother, or his friends. Did he see his future? No one knows, but police do believe this. The very last act of Tony Harris was to fight for his life. As he hung from that shoelace, his time now down to seconds, unable to use his arms and legs, he bit down on the tree, sinking his teeth into the trunk as if to buy one more inch of life-saving air. He failed, and he died there, hanging from the monkey pepper tree. The day after cutting his body down, police found a hole burrowed deep into the bark of the tree. Laying on the ground below was a tooth, the last will and testament of a man struggling for light in a place consumed by darkness. The two letters addressed to Tony Harris made it real for Laurie. The first was from the state of Washington, absolving him of any further child support. There was a space for reason and one box had been checked. Deceased. 
The next letter hurt even more. It was from the grocery store. Sorry, it began. We could not extend you an offer. His application had been denied. Lori wept for the man Tony wanted to be and for the man she'd lost. His family spreads Tony's ashes on the Green River in Washington, where he had so often found peace, the water slowly taking him away forever. At the service, they mourn the end of Tony Harris's life and begin the rest of their own lives without him. His son, Danique, goes to a gymnasium. He's on the JV basketball team and his first high school games that night. In the locker room, Danique quietly asks if he can switch jerseys with a teammate for the game. He wants to take the court with a number four on his back, the number Tony wore during happier times when he was a star in Brazil. Danique doesn't talk about that, though he also writes a four on his own sneakers. He will offer tribute to his father in the only way he knows how, with a game. He walks onto the court, already six foot three and growing, looking so much like his father, wearing his father's number. He can't miss that night from three-point range, and in the stands, next to his mom, sits a man who'd seen Tony play. The hairs on the back of the man's neck stand up. It's as if he has seen a ghost. One of the sort of things driving the story was, is the darkness in the world or in ourselves? I think everybody wonders how wide is the divide between how the world experiences me and how I experience the world. And it can be a little or it can be huge and it can, and it shifts. And so, I mean, you know, there are in this crazy story of this wild thing that happened to one person, uh, you know, I hope that there's enough of the universal that on some level the story is about the people reading it. The line is so thin. The unspoken part of that is people break all the time. And almost no one cares. We only cared about Tony because he once did something in a basketball tournament that was on our televisions. I mean, the, the sort of randomness of all of it. I mean... People break all the time, and loved ones are left utterly without answers all the time, and you know things are almost never resolved. This is, you know, it's not a Hallmark movie. The cost of these dreams is from iHeartMedia, Graphic Audio, and Wright Thompson. This series is produced by Goat Rodeo. Ian Enright and Megan Nadolsky are the lead producers. This episode is part of the eight-part series, The Cost of These Dreams. Find other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to dive in deeper to write Thompson's The Cost of These Dreams, access the full audiobook wherever you get your audiobooks. Discover other works by Wright Thompson, including his latest book, Pappyland, wherever books are sold. From the Goat Rodeo team, production assistance from Rebecca Seidel, Isabel Kirby McGowan, Hamza Shitu, Maxwell Johnston, and Kara Schillen. Music by Ian Enright. Our deep thanks to Wright Thompson, Caitlin Riley, and John Weiss. Thanks for listening.
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.